0: It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into mysteries about true histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods.
1: Resiliency is something we learn. We learn how to be resilient because it's like we reached a challenge and we were able to get over it. And a lot of the kids with executive function issues don't have that. They haven't experienced enough success to develop resiliency. So we've that ability to continue to try, we've got to understand that persistence might be impaired in our kids because they've never experienced enough of the payoff that comes from persistence. Welcome to Tilt
0: Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Dr. Ellen Broughton was one of my first guests on the Tilt Parenting podcast when she joined me back in 2016 to talk about her book about processing speed, Bright Kids Who Can Keep Up. I'm so happy to be bringing her back to the show to talk about motivation, which is the topic for her wonderful new book called Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. As the executive director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, and an associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, Ellen is widely recognized as an expert in the field of pediatric neuropsychological and psychological assessment, particularly in the areas of assessing learning disabilities and attentional disorders. In this episode, we explore motivation or what we might perceive as a lack of motivation from many different angles, including what is really going on when our child appears to be unmotivated, the relationship between executive function and motivation, how resilience comes into play, and the way in which we as parents and caregivers can support our kids in gaining confidence and skills so they can make meaningful progress towards the things that really light them up. I have already listened twice, read the book once, and will be going back for another read soon. If you've ever had the thought that your child doesn't care about the things that you feel they should care about, Ellen's work can offer a great reframe for considering all things motivation. Lastly, the doors to my Differently Wired Club are open this week. Please join us for the rest of the summer if you're craving a supportive community of parents navigating the same things you are plus virtual office hours, coaching calls, expert guests, and much more. Visit tiltparenting.com/slash club to join us. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Ellen Brutton on kids and motivation.
1: Hey Ellen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. I love being here.
0: It's been many years. I think you were a guest of mine in the first year of Chilled Parenting, where we talked about your book, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. Such a good book and a great episode. So listeners, go back and check that out if you haven't, because it is in the archives. But we're going to talk about your new book today. And before we get into that, I've read your bio, but if you could tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing in the world today, your why for doing it, maybe what's exciting you about the work you're doing today?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So I am a child psychologist who specializes in neuropsychology for my clinical work, which means like I assess kids with learning and attention and uh, emotional differences and issues. And I'm also a researcher. I am an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. So I have both of these wonderful parts to my work where I'm working with kids and also getting to study them as well. And so my first book really came out of the fact that I was seeing a lot of kids struggling to sort of keep up. And a lot of them had learning disabilities or ADHD, but not all of them did. I think I first started thinking about that book about 12 years ago or so. So I wrote the book. I've studied that, what we call processing speed issues. And in the last five to six years, I was seeing a lot of kids who were having troubles getting motivated, staying motivated. And what I found was, well, what I thought was that many of those kids were the bright kids who couldn't keep up who were growing up. And so I thought, oh, maybe it's just kids with processing speed issues, because that was sort of my area of research and my area of clinical expertise. But a lot of kids didn't have issues with processing speed. They didn't have any kind of issues. Maybe they were a little anxious or a little depressed, but they were really just feeling meh about life. And their parents were calling me worried. And so that's really the area that I became interested in. And in 2019, I approached my publisher because they were Eager for me to write another book, I said, what about a book sort of about kids who couldn't care less? And actually, our working title was Bright Kids Who Don't Give A, and you can just fill in the blank. And it was really about kids who had a lot of issues, really significant trouble. And then 2020 happened, and so many kids are having trouble staying motivated, and adults for that matter. And so the book kind of broadened its scope into talking about motivation. How do we understand ourselves? How do we use our understanding of our kids and even ourselves to increase motivation, but really more than just motivation, but our love? of life and a way of living in the world that's more in line with who we are and who we see ourselves to be. So that's kind of taken over now my area of research and clinical work. I talked more about the books than I did about what I do, but I love to write. I really still enjoy my work as a neuropsychologist and also the work that I do in my research.
0: Yeah, it seems like such a great blend of things I can tell just in your voice that you're kind of in flow, which we'll talk about later, that this is kind of a very sweet spot for you. And it benefits all of us. So I'm so grateful for that. You mentioned your book. It's called Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. Coming out of COVID, it's such a important topic. And within my community, motivation comes up all the time in so many different contexts. Also, this word laziness, a lot of conversations about laziness, is it laziness or, you know, my kid could do better, but they're not. And could we even start with definitions of motivation and laziness? How would you break those down?
1: Sure. Well, laziness is more like an adjective. It's a way of describing somebody's behavior, but it really doesn't mean much. I mean, we can all feel lazy when we're like, oh, I'm tired. It's really, it's not a very good term to think about when we're thinking about kids because most kids are not lazy. It's really more about an issue of motivation. And motivation is the why or it's the reason we do the things that we do. So, motivation can have a lot of different reasons. And there are lots of psychologists who have hypothesized about that. We get motivated because we want to do something, so we, because we like it. We want to do things because we want to sort of maintain our psychological status quo, meaning, you know, we want to not be too much on edge and not too. Unmotivated. So for example, we watch an exciting TV show when we're bored or we take a bath when we're, we're motivated to take a bath when our arousal levels are high. So that's another reason for motivation. And then other psychologists have talked about motivation in the way of, and we might, some of your listeners might remember like that. Hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and at the top is sort of self actualization, at the bottom are physiological needs. And so we've got to think about motivation in that way too that if we don't have our basic needs met, we're not really motivated to do some of those higher things. For instance, friendships and that life or belonging needs are kind of in the middle. So if our friendships aren't going very well, the higher needs for self esteem aren't going to be very motivational for us. So it's motivation, I guess, it was what I'm saying. It's complicated. There are a lot of pieces that make up reasons why we're motivated. So we can look lazy when we're not motivated, but it's complicated.
0: Yeah, it is really complicated. There's a part of motivation that seems to be almost like, resilience or grit, this kind of thing that we're striving for. But it seems like there's no pathway to follow these steps and you instantly have a motivated child. And certainly that is the case. As you share, a lot of this is about us really getting to know our kids on a deeper level and understanding ourselves as well. I'd love to talk about these three major components of motivation. You described them as initiation. So initiation being the decision to begin an activity, persistence, the effort we put in and intensity, the stamina required. So as I was reading that in your book, I was thinking, yeah, those are executive functions. You speak to that. And so what came up for me is so many of our kids are struggling with executive function challenges and we're always led to think about how can we have our kids have more buy-in so that they're motivated to work on these executive functions. Yet, those executive functions are key components of motivation. So I was having like a chicken and an egg moment as I was reading about this. And I'm wondering if it's similar, like the relationship between executive functions and motivation. Could you tease that out for us a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think you did a great way of explaining this. Motivation really has three different parts. I see a lot of kids with executive function issues with slow processing speed or ADHD. They start the semester. I really want to do well this semester. And so it's that initiation is that decision that I'm going to get started on this task, but it also includes the ability to get started on this task. And so that's an important component. And a lot of kids with executive function have trouble initiating or getting started on tasks. So they want to succeed. They don't know how. They don't know how to get started. And so if that's an issue for your child... That's a key. If we haven't fixed that, you're going to have a child who's in that constant circle of being unmotivated because it's like, I was motivated to do it, but I didn't have the tools in order to get started on it. So, therefore, motivation isn't something that I can even tap into. And then we have persistence, which is that effort that we put toward continuing to stick with it. So it's sort of like, all right, I got started on the history paper that I really, I love history. You know, you've got kids who even struggle in certain aspects of academics, but love the subject. All right, you help them get started, but they don't know how to try. And you you mentioned resiliency and all of that colors this, but resiliency is something we learn. We learn how to be resilient because it's like we reached a challenge And we were able to get over it. And a lot of the kids with executive function issues don't have that. They haven't experienced enough success to develop resiliency. So we've that ability to continue to try. We've got to understand that persistence might be impaired in our kids because they've never experienced enough of the payoff that comes from persistence. And then that intensity, that concentration that is important, that stamina is also hard for kids with executive functioning because of the attentional aspects that it takes to concentrate and be intense. Obviously, kids can struggle in all three of these areas, But it's really good to take a look at, is one more of a chronic problem for my child than the other? Because that can be a useful place of starting a conversation. You mentioned, too, that I wish there was a how-to list. There's a... Five steps for increasing motivation. It's not like that. Motivation is something we all struggle with on a day to day basis. It's we have to be motivated to do the things that are on our list. We've got to be motivated to get in the car to go to work. We've got to be motivated. These are skills that your child is learning. So we've got to look at this as an opportunity to help them build that skill. I use an example, something like saying to your child, you know, I saw you were. Excited to start that project that your teacher asked you to do. I know the topic's something you're passionate about. What's getting in the way of helping you get it done? What do you need? What can I do to help? And that's really what I talk a lot about in the book is that it's a lot about having conversations with our kids about what's getting in the way while using our expertise as parents or even teachers as as figuring it out too. So, I'm not sure I answered your question exactly about the executive function skills, but we've got to look at these things as working hand in hand, that the motivation is requiring executive function skills, and we can use our knowledge about how we build executive function skills to build motivation.
0: That's great. You absolutely answered it and more, and makes so much sense. And I want to point out for listeners one of the things that I really loved about your book is at the end of every chapter, you have something called Think, Talk, Do. So you provide prompts for what we should be and want to be thinking about as it relates to the content you just shared, what we want to talk about with our kids. And you have really wonderful suggestions and some language as well to really get to know your child's perspective or where they are with that topic and then what to actually do so it's very practical in that way when you were on the show first time again we were talking about slow processing speed and you wrote that you've noticed many kids with a slower processing speed especially ones who didn't get appropriate treatment or accommodations grow up into kids who don't care that was really interesting to me could you say a little bit more about that
1: Yes. So, without the appropriate accommodation. So, what happens when we are put into situations that we chronically can't manage, that we can't be successful in, becoming unmotivated is the absolute end, the end thing that happens. We can't help it. You can't live a life where you're chronically feeling like I can't do the work that I'm asked to do within the time frame that I'm asked to do it. So, without those appropriate accommodations and even an appropriate understanding. So, for kids with slow processing speed, it's not even getting the right accommodations in school like the extra time, all of those things that we talked about. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that, but it's even sort of looking at those kids over the course of a lifetime, that they're going to be perhaps slower than we think they should be in our society, that they should meet those timely goals. For instance, I talk about going to college right after high school, or even being ready for kindergarten at the same time. Of course, parents don't always have a neuropsych evaluation that shows their child's processing speed at age four, but we tend to know our kids that they're like, it just seems like he's slower than everybody else. And simple things like, putting on his shoes, brushing his teeth in the morning. It just, life takes longer. And if life takes longer when we're talking about a morning activity, it's going to take longer when we talk about a lifetime. And that's okay. So I find that what happens with kids, a lot of kids actually with low motivation, motivation or who couldn't care less, but particularly kids with processing speed, they start even in middle and high school to look like unmotivated kids because they look at the future and they say, I'm not going to be ready for the life that you seem to think I need right now. And what you're saying is at 18, I'm going to have to go to college when I can barely manage the sorts of tasks you're asking me to do now in eighth grade. And so they show us, they don't know We don't even know, but they show us that they're not prepared by not doing things, by saying, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And that's basically what an unmotivated person looks like. like, Again, bringing up that concept of laziness, but really it's like, I can't do this. Nobody likes being lazy unless we're really talking about sitting by a pool on vacation. It's just, no one likes it. We don't, it's not something that makes us Happy. So, yeah, so the kids with slow processing speed, they look a little bit unmotivated just by their characteristics. And so they kind of grow into this thing that everyone expects them to be or look like. We'll be right back
0: after a quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to uplevel our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones. Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. A lot of the book is about Parents' expectations, which I appreciated so much. That's a lot of what we talk about at Till Parenting is this mismatch between what we expected, life as a parent, what we expected our kids to be like, and what is actually happening. And you wrote in a chapter called The Parenting App for Motivating Kids, you wrote, If you're thinking your child doesn't seem to like anything, is it possible that she just doesn't like what you expected? I thought that was so beautifully stated. And you then go on to present this framework, the parenting app, these three essential things that parents really should be considering when they're thinking that their child isn't motivated or they're at risk of not being motivated. Would you mind breaking down the parenting app for us?
1: Sure. So I developed this because I was having trouble getting a good framework for how do we conceptualize motivation and then what do we do? So the parenting app stands for three different areas, aptitude, pleasure, and practice. And so I break each one of these down in a chapter too. And for aptitude really talks about what is my child good at doing? And that's really We've got to think back to your question or your reflection about sometimes the issue with motivation is what we thought our child was going to be, who we thought our child was going to be. And that's okay. We're always going to have that. It's just part of parenting. We think our child is going to be all the things that we wanted ourselves to be. It's normal. Throughout history, this is what happens. But what we want to do is look at who our child is, and that's where the aptitude comes in. What is my child good at doing? And sometimes when you've got a really unmotivated child, you've lost track of that. In some ways, we know because we've got a neuropsych eval or a school evaluation great. But in a lot of cases, we don't. And so, you need to start thinking about your child. Where's my child happiest? How much time does my child spend doing the things they like to do? What are their strengths? We've got to start thinking about strengths is more than just good grades, they're smart. But what about things like kindness and empathy and all the kinds of characteristics that actually make us good humans. We lose track of that. And a lot of times unmotivated kids are good at all of the things that we don't tend to value in childhood, like creativity, curiosity, bravery, honesty, zest for life, all of those things. So that's aptitude. And then pleasure is what are the kinds of things we like doing? And sometimes those are the things we're good at doing but sometimes it's not. So I think about the child who's really good at playing the violin or at soccer, who's like, yeah, but I don't want to do that, mom. Like, I don't care that I'm good at soccer and you love coaching it. It's not what gives me pleasure. And so looking at what are the sorts of things that my child likes doing and then practices, what are the sorts of things that my child does when they have time to do it. So what are the sorts of activities they return to without me prompting? Everybody's going to say video games, and that's true, but a lot of times kids do video games to blow off steam, not because they actually love doing it. They might like doing it, but just like for me, I scroll through Instagram when I'm feeling overwhelmed. It's like, oh, I don't want to get started on something. I find myself, do you know what I mean? So to those three areas, we want kids to be sort of in the center of what their aptitudes are, what gives them pleasure and what they tend to like spending time doing. So that's what that is. And it's a framework for sort of rethinking or starting to think about, all right, if I want to motivate my child, before I even think about the goals, I've got to think about who my child is, what they like doing, and what they spend time doing.
0: Yeah, I love that. And also can totally relate to the Instagram scrolling as in my mind, I'm saying, What are you doing, Debbie? This is such a waste of time. Yet I can't, I just need to sink into it sometimes. (laughs)
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think being conscious of it helps. There's a term for it, and I didn't write it down. Somebody said this to me, but it's like, it's not even doom scrolling, it's like boredom scrolling. And that it's like, Oh, when I'm feeling maybe even a little anxious or I got so much to do. For conscious of that, that's okay. So give us a break. We even do that with our kids. Come home from school, it's a lot for you to handle. What do you need to do to sort of chill out? So maybe going for a walk might be better for me, but maybe for a child, you know, it's jumping on a trampoline or it could be playing video games for 30 minutes. All right, do it. Let yourself engage in it and now embrace the next step. Well, I also just want to say I love
0: the focus on strengths, and you talk a lot about that in the book, and that you presented all these different ways to look at strengths, including character strengths, which I think is so important. The pleasure chapter, I also thought was super interesting. And you talk about opposites, and you describe the opposite of pleasure as being apathy. You said that can be a sign of depression or anxiety, but not always. And apathy is one of those really hard things for parents because it feels for so many of us like this is a choice. Just care about something, right? It feels really hard for, I think, parents if they believe that their child is apathetic. And I'm wondering if you have any other insights to what is behind apathy, if we're noticing that.
1: I think apathy comes, especially for kids, when they don't know exactly what to do. So we become apathetic when we don't have good goals. And when we don't know what the next step is for us, apathy can also be signs of depression. It can also be a sign that your child has lost friendships. You want to ask them, I see that you're spending a lot of time doing X, Y, or Z, spending time in your bed, bedroom, whatever it is, you want to define what that is and then talk to them about that. But most of the time, it has a root in anxiety combined with a lack of a goal. A lot of times I find kids looking like they're apathetic because They've been doing something and it didn't work out and parents and kids don't know what the next step should be. For a lot of kids, it's that spinning their wheels phase. And so the best thing to do about that is to start to think about, okay, what's the next step? And I also should say, too, some kids become apathetic because they've got too much on their plate. So even as adults, again, I I try to to connect this to us because this all happens with us, too. We become apathetic when it's like, I have too many things to do, so I'm just going to do none of them or nothing looks good. When we're over-challenged, we can become apathetic, too. So I want to make sure this isn't just an issue with kids who have learning differences, or processing speed issues, but also for some of those high achieving kids who are like, I'm done. Five AP classes and like, I just don't care about life anymore. It can hit a lot of different kids in a lot of different ways that what looks like a super motivated kid can become an apathetic kid because they're like, I'm overwhelmed.
0: I love that you relate that as well to an adult experience. Maybe this is just me talking, but I don't think I'm alone here that we forget that our kids have their own internal experience and all the things that at this point in our lives, I've learned so many hacks for myself. And I've worked through so many different emotional ups and downs and how to navigate lack of motivation and all of these things. And we feel like our kids should get it because we tell them one thing and we have this wisdom to share. And we forget that our kids are on their own journey of developing and growing and learning these things. It's something they have to go through.
1: Yeah, totally. And that's why I, like you mentioned at the end of every chapter, it's like what to think about. It's really what the parents can think about. And a lot of times it relates to their child, but also to us. And that they're watching our journey as we're doing it. So if we have a life that's not filled with a lot of pleasure, how do we expect them to find pleasure in their lives? Most parents will say to me, almost thought when I asked what do you what are your expectations for your child I want my child to be happy but yet we as parents aren't always continuing our quest for happiness the same time that our children, are, we're putting this pressure on them. We want our kids to be happy. Well, you know what? Maybe we should be working on ourselves a little bit more about that and figuring out what gives us pleasure because that's a role model too. We think about, oh, it's important for us to be reading so our kids develop a love of reading. We also need to be tapped into what's making us happy and not just our kids are making us happy, but what is it that we loved? And what is it that we could be doing? I'm not saying we should all just run off to Italy and learn cooking, but that we should infuse our life with pleasure so that we can provide good role models for our kids about what pleasure means to them or for them.
0: I'd like to run off to Italy and do some cooking. That sounds really nice. Um,
1: I'd love to run off to Italy and have someone cook for me, actually. But yes, yeah.
0: (laughs) We'll be right back after a quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. You just shared these three components in the framework. So there's aptitude, pleasure, and practice. And you present them in the form of a Venn diagram that we're kind of building. And you talk about flow as living in the center of that Venn diagram. Can you talk about what flow is and how we can recognize when our kid is in flow?
1: Yeah. So flow was a term that was developed by a very famous psychologist who I always have trouble pronouncing his name. Cheska Mahale, I think is how you pronounce his name. And it's, he really studied the pursuit of happiness. And it's that state where we are, where we're so engrossed in a task that we forget to eat lunch. It's that state that we're in where we're not overly challenged or underly challenged, but just blissfully happy. It's not even that state of writing a paper or something like that, but just that state of where we're really in that sweet spot where we can feel confident and we're being challenged, but just enough. We need to have the skills so that we can be in that level and so we don't want a task that's too challenging, but if we're very skilled in a certain area, we do have to have challenging tasks. I don't know if I explained that correctly, but it depends on our skill level. So if we're just learning something, we want the task to be such that it's just hard enough for us to be able to do it well, but to also be just inching up our way to another level in that skill. So to move kids from apathy to flow, we've gotta have two things to happen. They need to feel successful in their ability to complete the task and they need the environment to challenge them to think. It's an environment situation and also a skill situation. And I find that those two things aren't always in tandem when we're finding kids who are struggling. So, we're either kids are put into situations where they're not challenged enough. So, they seem apathetic or unmotivated. So, we move them down a section in their math class. There's either that or there's a push for them to be less bored. Oh, they need to be more challenged. And so, we need to think about both of those to get that dynamic correct Is kind of troubling and you're not going to fix it overnight. But you need to sort of think about what does my child need to be in that flow? Do they need more services? Do they need fewer services? Do they need to be challenged? But we've got to kind of think about that. And then I think there are also things that get in the way of flow and that tend to make kids more that apathetic. Not enough sleep, for example. If we are tired, we can't be in flow. And we forget to mention how much sleep is part of all of these things that we're talking about. When kids are overscheduled, it's hard to be in a flow. If we've got too much in our calendar, we don't have time to be in that sweet spot. And so I think those are other things that get in the way of being in that flow.
0: Yeah. So as you're talking, I'm thinking about the connection between that flow state And motivation. I think so many parents, again, going back to expectations, we want our kids to be motivated about the things that we think are important. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is that we want to help identify those places where our kids are in flow, because that is actually a very motivating place for them to be. And It's not that we can then take the motivation there and pivot it to the things that we care about, but rather how can we build, you talk about goodness of fit, where can we build their strengths and continue to grow motivation in places where they're already
1: feeling that. Am I getting that right? You're getting it perfectly correctly. Yes. That's what we exactly want to do. Kids need time to be able to do that. And that's where it takes time. For us to find the things that we love, oftentimes in the course of a life, again, sort of bring it back to you, we lose that, you know, when was the last time you felt happiest as a parent? Now, apply that to your child. Like, for me, I love writing. I don't always have the time that I want to do that, but when I keep that in mind, it's like, okay, I've got to build that time for doing nothing, not just to say, oh, I'm going to sit down, but I've got to build time into thinking about that. So if you've got a child who's creative, if you've got a child who loves music or something, you've got to build that time in. You've also got to build in time for kids to putz around to find what it is that they would like to do in order to reach that flow. Yes.
0: One of the things that you address in the book that I actually haven't seen come up in many of the books I've read and covered on this show is this idea of temperaments. And that really resonated for me. We talk about brain wiring and neurodivergence and things like that. But Temperament as a concept doesn't often come up. And it really jumped out at me as something that's a consideration. There's the nature versus nurture, but who is our child and what is their kind of natural inclination and how important that is to understand how their temperament fits into all of this. Is there anything that you can walk us through with that concept?
1: Yeah, first of all, I'm so glad you brought this up because my, when I was writing the book, my editor was like, oh, "Do we need temperament again because in a lot of psychology books, it's part of child development, but we don't really use it as a way of describing kids as they grow." So, temperament is really that general behavioral style that it's the way we react to and express and regulate our emotions. And we talk a lot about temperament when we have a baby. Is or do they have an easy temperament? or a less easy temperament? Is it the kind of child who's crying all the time, colicky? And it's funny because I just, I have my first great niece. I'm a great aunt now, it makes me feel old. She's only a month old. And two weeks after she was born, there's this picture of her where her arms were outstretched above her head, and she looked like she was sort of like yelling. And somebody remarked in the picture on Facebook, oh, that looks just like her. Now, she's only 14 days old, but already people were making remarks about her temperament, that she's kind of a strong-willed baby. And those labels, either shy or easy baby versus strong, those things last. And those labels, I will have parents come in with a 14-year-old and say, oh, he was hard from the day he was born. And those, we've got to explore what are the kinds of labels we put on our child from the very beginning. And some of them are accurate, but a lot of them aren't. And you know, things like, are they a very agreeable kind of kid? Did they move with the punches? All of that. And then we also have to understand our own temperament. Are we the sort of person who's more extroverted or introverted on our child is the opposite. Are we having disagreements about that? But I also think it's important for us to reframe our language about some of these temperamental characteristics. Like the difficult baby we can also look at that as strong-willed, and I put some of these in there. The bossy toddler, we could reframe that as determined, or the slow kind of kid, the easygoing baby. You know, you're like, oh, he's been slow since the day you know he was born. We could say easygoing. You know, the slow can be easygoing. The annoying kind of kid is a persistent person too, and we can help use that. That doesn't mean that sometimes these labels are (laughs) are absolutely correct. You know, kids can be have sort of annoying personality, but there's a way that we can use that to reframe the way we think about our kids and how they think about themselves because they grow up to think I'm an annoying person. Nobody likes me. All right. You know what? It is, but let's look at it as persistence. Let's look at that picky eater as the discerning kind of eater. It's not like we want to just pretend these things aren't happening, but we want to help reframe it because those sorts of labels are very demotivating to us as we come into ourselves.
0: Yeah, it really did jump out at me. I think for those very reasons, I think the label that I use often is tricky to describe a lot of the kids in this community and my own human, but challenging, strong willed spirited, I guess spirited could be negative or positive. But anyway, I really just appreciated that you included that as part of this.
1: Yeah, and tricky. I think that that's good too. We like tricky in in a lot of ways. It means it's complicated. It means we have to think about it. It means that, you know, what this child deserves my highest level of concentration when I have it, because we don't we're not unlimited. But to kind of think about that as it's tough, but it also means that I, it's going to challenge me to be a better mom too, or dad, or you know, parent. Good reframe.
0: So part three of the book is keys to helping your child care more. And you have a chapter where you talk about goals and I'm going to pull out a quote from the book. Kids who couldn't care less are very often kids without goals. If they do have goals, the goals aren't often shared by the people who love them. So identifying appropriate goals and using them to motivate behavior and find meaning in life is one of the most important ways to help your child. I want to say, first of all, that I, I love that. And as a goal oriented person. I wrote a book for teens on how to set and reach goals. I'm all in. And I know that so many parents in my community have kids who are very demand avoidant and might really bristle at the thought of creating a goal that might feel like a demand. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts for parents who want to lean into developing goals to help their child feel more motivated, but they're worried their kids might push back.
1: Nobody likes to have goals forced on them. That's a demand, and we hate that. Everyone hates it. Kids hate it the most. I do talk about setting goals, but there are better books like yours on how to do that in depth. My book really talks about how to use that information about our kids as a way of starting those conversations about goals. And so I think the best way to approach goals is by starting a conversation about it. And The one thing I find that parents that I work with have trouble with is they don't realize and maybe you could even give me better words to describe this, but that a goal is sort of an aspiration that needs to change and that we're always disappointed when we don't make our goals, but really it's just a first step and goals need constant revising and we don't have that as part of the whole goal setting. But I think the best way to start with a really unmotivated child is to get them to talk about what are the sorts of things you want to do. And you might have to start with what makes you happy. And they might even come back and say, well, nothing. And then you've got to have a discussion about that. But let's say they can come up with some things. Then it's, what do you look forward to doing? You know, what are the sorts of things that make you feel excited? What do you want to get out of this school year? What do you want to do after high school? And to even have questions, even in middle school, about it's not going to be that long before you start high school and finish high school. Where do you see yourself? And some kids are going to talk about college and others aren't. Even having things, talking to them about what kinds of things are hard for you, but you like to do them anyway. And what are the sorts of things that are easy for you, but you hate doing them? So those are the sorts of things. And they should be part of a family's vocabulary. Lots of talking about those sorts of things. What do you hope to accomplish this school year, this season, this week, you know, in your history class, all of those sorts of things are really good ways of starting to think about goals and goal setting.
0: Thank you. And listeners, I want to reiterate the book is called Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. And I really just enjoyed this book because it made me think really critically about my role where I'm stuck. You talk about having a flexible mindset, but it's not just for our kids. It's for us as well. And there's so much goodness in here to really help us change our thinking about what motivation looks like and then how to really support our kids in experiencing just more pleasure and competency in their own life. So is there anything before we say goodbye that we didn't touch upon that you would really want to make sure listeners take away from this conversation?
1: I just want to mention too that there are times when this kind of demotivated kid, it needs more than just the sorts of things we've talked about. And just the behaviors that are of concern are the things, the things that you want to look at and know when you need to reach out for help are constant feelings of low self-esteem, feeling inferior to others, lots of problems getting along with peers or no friends feelings of anxiety, depression, changes in sleep, you know, all of the things that are indicators for significant anxiety and depression. And if that's happening, a lot of the things we've talked about aren't going to work because we've got to treat the child for the depression or the anxiety. I mean, you can have some of these discussions, but it's really hard to even talk about what makes you happy if you're really depressed. So just be aware of that. Don't be afraid to seek help if that's what you think might be happening. And make sure that you take care of that as well. Thank you for that. I know that that's going to resonate with so
0: many listeners who are raising kids who are, are having mental health challenges right now. So thank you for that. And where would you like listeners to check out you and your work?
1: My book is available in your local bookstores, or you can order it from your local bookstores if they're not there in all of the normal places, barnesandnoble.com and, and all of that. I also have a website, PhD.com, where you can get more information about this and also about processing speed and some of the other things that we've talked about.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Listeners, I'll have links to that in the show notes as always. And Ellen, this has been such a great conversation. I so appreciate everything that you shared with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. I I loved it too. You've been listening to
0: the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com.